Nothing else of interest in the world? Yes, today? sir. Very significant, this uh, goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that. I see. That, that I didn't read the story, but uh, you mean that, that was leaked out of the Pentagon? Sir, it, uh, the whole study that was done for McNamara and then carried on after McNamara left by Clifford and the Peaceniks over there, this is a devastating uh, security breach of, of the greatest magnitude of anything I've well, seen. Well, what, uh, what's being done about it? As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And you know, I consider myself a very educated and informed member of the public prior to enlisting in the military and deploying to Iraq in 2010. Um, but uh, you know, there was this discrepancy between what we had access to in the public versus what I actually finally saw on the ground and what we as you know, a collective were really sort of seeing on the ground and experiencing every single day. This was not just extreme carelessness with classified material, which is still totally disqualified. Secrets. Everybody's got them. But it's hard to imagine who has more secrets than the United States government. By some estimates, the next time you blink your eye, dozens of new secrets will have been created across the many agencies of the United States government, not to mention the intelligence and data subcontractors who work for them. Of course, the public only becomes aware of the mechanisms, practices, decisions, and laws that create these secrets when classified materials are exposed, either by mistake or by a whistleblower. That conversation you heard at the beginning of the episode was President Richard Nixon as he learned about the publication of the so-called Pentagon Papers from his national security advisor, Alexander Haig, in 1971. Forty-seven volumes of studies commissioned by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara in 1967 to evaluate the progress and future of the Vietnam War, the report had to be classified as top secret and sensitive. Why? Because they told the truth. The war in Southeast Asia was a blunder and could not be won. And as we know, you don't have to be a spy with a miniature camera hidden in your pen to make off with those secrets. In 1969, Daniel Ellsberg, a defense intellectual who had access to the materials, simply copied them on a Xerox machine, spirited them out of the building, and gave them to the New York Times, which began to publish them on June 13, 1971. Sometimes even the government can't put all those secrets together to form a coherent narrative of events. The second speaker was George W. Bush's Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, engaging in what sounds like classic government double-talk about the United States' invasion of Afghanistan in 2002. In fact, as this episode's guest will show, intelligence can be a maze of secrets, from the ordinary to the extraordinary, many of which U.S. agencies conceal from each other as well as from the public. The United States opened a second front of the so-called War on Terror in Iraq on March 19, 2003. Some people in government, like NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, began to believe that these secrets were dangerous and belonged in the public realm where U.S. policies could be honestly debated. In 2011, intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning 
the third voice in that introductory reel, had begun downloading classified documents and burning them on CDs, including a horrifying video that showed U.S. pilots deliberately targeting Iraqi civilians and children for death. Bringing the CDs home in her baggage when she returned home on leave, Manning uploaded thousands of classified born digital materials to WikiLeaks while sitting outside a Barnes & Noble in suburban Maryland. But it's not just whistleblowers that fall afoul of the secrecy regime. In 2016, we learned that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, by diverting her government email to a private server, dealt far too casually with the thousands of digital secrets that passed across her screen every day. That last voice on the opening reel was all too familiar. Presidential candidate Donald J. Trump, promising his voters that he would deal harshly with anyone, and particularly his opponent, Secretary Clinton, who had handled classified materials inappropriately. That is, until similar items showed up in his Florida home last year. Fortunately, I have a guest today who can help us parse the world of government secrecy, its history, its practices, its dilemmas, and the ways that secrecy undermines our democracy. Matthew Connolly is a professor of international and global history at Columbia University and the co-director of the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy. He's the principal investigator of History Lab, a National Science Foundation-funded project that applies data science to the problem of preserving the public record and accelerating declassification. Out of that work came a new book, The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. It's about the vast and dizzying world of national security from Pearl Harbor to the garages and closets of 21st century ex-presidents. Join Matt and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 13, If I Told You, I Would Have to Kill You. Matthew Connolly, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Great to be with you, Claire. So, Matt, how did you get involved in trying to figure out what our top secrets were? Yeah, so uh, I got interested 10 years ago in writing a book about the history of the end of the world. Uh, I've always been a little bit obsessed, you know, with things like nuclear war and pandemics and asteroids and volcanoes and so on. So, I had this project going at Columbia where I had a team of students and together, you know, we were doing this research on the way that the Pentagon made plans for nuclear war. And, you know, there's a lot of declassified documents. And so we were just, you know, trolling through all this stuff. But I began to realize that there was so much more that was missing. You know, so some of the most fascinating documents were when they had these war games, you know, these scenario exercises where they imagine, you know, what if the Cubans invade Florida? You know, what if that starts a race war? I mean, some of this stuff was pretty wild. But as I looked at it, I began to realize that this was just one of hundreds of war games and scenarios. And I started to ask myself, like, well, why is it we're not seeing more of these? You know, where are the rest of them? And because I was writing this, or at least I thought I was writing this, you know, history of the future, 
I started to think, you know, could there be a future for historical research where we might figure out ways to figure out what's missing, right? What it is, in this case, the government didn't want us to know. And so that's how I started down that path. I put that whole idea of the history of the end of the world to one side. And then I got really obsessed, you know, with talking to the people who use data science techniques to take on these giant piles of documents. Years ago, I went to a talk by Blanche Wiesen Cook when she wrote a book called The Declassified Eisenhower. And Blanche wrote that book basically by running from building to building to building in Washington as archivists gave her clues about what to look for. But you didn't have to run from building to building. Um, you did something else. How are you finding these classified documents? Yeah, I love going to archives. Like I'm an archive rat. And, you know, in the past, uh, I wrote this history of the population control movement. By the end of it, I think I'd been like to 50 different archives. <laughs> um, so I love archives. But what I began to realize is that uh, not only are more and more of the archives that we're interested in as historians, more and more of them are digitized and available online. But in fact, when you go back to the 1970s, what you find is a lot of the original records were electronic records, right? So this is what we call born digital. And what's different about this stuff is, first of all, you know, whereas in an archive, you've got all these documents and they're filed away, like literally, you know, in boxes. And the idea is that they were taken out of the file cabinets pretty much in the same order in which like Henry Kissinger would be pawing through them. What you find when you have these like millions of State Department cables is that they don't really come in any recognizable order. So that makes it really hard to research in those kinds of materials using the traditional methods that we historians typically use. But on the other hand, once you realize like, oh my God, I've got like millions of records and I've got like tons and tons of like metadata, like who was the one who sent it, who received it, how they classified it, all the rest of it, you can start to do totally new kinds of analysis. At the beginning of the project, you risked actually becoming an enemy of the state. And I wondered you if you would tell our listeners about the difficulties you had launching the History Lab in the first place. Yeah. So I found, you know, right away uh, when you started to talk to people about this, you know, whether you're talking to data scientists or historians, you know, a lot of people are excited about this idea. Because who wouldn't be, right? Of course, like, you know, we know that, you know, the government use, uh, uses like data, data science tools, you know, to discover everything they can about us, you know, so why wouldn't we want to use these tools to discover what we can about what the government has been doing all this time? So, you know, we went out and we tried to get a grant. And what we found, though, and, and this actually happened right after the Snowden story broke, we found this particular foundation, they were, they one day were completely ready, you know, to write the check, you know, and help us get started. The next day after the, the Snowden story broke, they wrote and said, well, wait a minute here, you know, why should we give you a grant, you know, to do something that could be criminal, right, where we could all get prosecuted. And so that began, like, months of back and forth where this foundation like brought in outside lawyers, uh, people who were like, one of them was the, the former general counsel of the NSA. Another one was the head of major crimes at the Southern District of, of New York. Um, you know, Columbia had to get their own lawyer. <laughs> there were a lot of lawyers. And, uh, and all of a sudden, like, you know, I'm looking at this 60 page memorandum that itemizes all the different laws that we might be breaking and all the different ways some prosecutor could come after us. And that must have been kind of scary. It was, it was scary. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a historian, like we usually don't get into this kind of trouble, 
Now that said, you know, pretty quickly, so especially like once we started talking to, you know, somebody who had had a, a lot of experience in this area, you know, it actually had to defend people against prosecution under the Espionage Act. You know, pretty click, quickly it was clear that, you know, we were academics, right? And we're doing research with declassified documents. Now it's true, you know, we have more of them than anyone else. Like we've aggregated like millions of these declassified documents. And it's also true, you know, that we are using, you know, machine learning algorithms and high performance computers and such. But, you know, thank God <laughs> we still have this thing called the First Amendment, right? And because of longstanding precedent, you know, academics are allowed to take some chances, right? They're allowed to go out there and try to discover things. Um, so, you know, now and then I still hear from people with security clearances about how, you know, they hear from other people how it is that they think, you know, we could still get in trouble. Maybe we could even get prosecuted. But I think most people, when you tell them what we're trying to do and the fact that what we're really trying to do is help the government figure out how they can identify sensitive information, so the rest of us, you know, are allowed to see everything else, then I think people begin to realize that there is a public interest defense here, and it's actually quite strong. And one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking at the beginning of the book about overclassification, and I want to get into the question of why we classify so much um, in this country, but I was thinking about going to the National Archives in College Park after 9-11, and I had some research to do in the Department of Justice Archives, Record Group 65. And when I got there, there was barely a seat available because there were all of these people from the Department of Justice who were reclassifying archival material that had already been declassified. And they were basically going through everything all over again to say, okay, we need more secrets now that we're going to war in the Middle East. You talk about why so much is classified in the first place. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because I don't think most people recognize that there is this, there is so much classified material that the government can't even cope with it. That's right. Uh, and, you know, this isn't a secret anymore. If you read obscure government reports, as I do, you can find, you know, 10 years ago, you find, you know, committees, commissions, like publicly saying that the only way we're even going to begin to get on top of this problem of two minutes secrecy is to begin using the same kind of technology, right? Beginning to use uh, data science tools to figure out what, what's really sensitive, what actually has to be protected. Because, you know, yeah, you could fill an archive a reading room, you know, with government officials who would go through documents trying to figure out, you know, what it is the rest of us weren't supposed to know. But to take one example, this comes from one of these reports, you know, 10 years ago, it was estimated that one intelligence agency was generating a petabyte of secret information, secret data uh, every 18 months. It's a little hard to wrap your head around it, but what they did, just to make it simple for the rest of us, is they said, like, imagine these were the equivalent of paper documents, right? So a petabyte, if you imagine it as a row of file cabinets, right, with, with paper, each one marked top secret, this row of file cabinets would circle the equator. And they said that you would need more than a million archivists, you know, to go through all of that to decide what the rest of us are allowed to know. Okay, so, so you know, now and then you hear these kinds of, of figures and you begin to get a sense, you know, even a decade ago, again, like how it is that this problem was, was growing out of control. But I can tell you, like having worked in lots of archives, going back, you know, all the way to the 1940s, 
This was a problem from the beginning. Even in the 1950s, you find, for example, a Pentagon report, 1956, they said the problem of overclassification has reached serious proportions. <laughs> so this is, you know, like 1956. So this is not a new problem. It's just grown over time. And we've gotten to the point where now it's grown completely out of control. And we should talk a little bit about why there are so many things that need to be kept secret and whether that's legitimate. I mean, my father was in the CIA for a few years, and he used to say when I was a kid, most of what you need to know about another country is probably in the newspaper. My guess is that's no longer true. So what are the kinds of things that are legitimately secret? And what are the kinds of things that are being turned into secrets that we could loosen up on? Well, Clara, in this case, there may not be many like it, but in this one case, I'm going to have to agree with your father and disagree with you. Because if anything, it's even more the true now than it was then. Most of what you'd want to know is available in open sources. And people in the intelligence community will say this now. I was working through the papers of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and he had, you know, because of who he was, he was an American senator and so on, you know, he talked to, you know, the most senior officials and cabinet secretaries and so on. And that's what he was hearing. And he was hearing it from people like George Schultz, you know, back in the 90s, George Schultz, former Secretary of State under Reagan was saying, you know, even more now than then, most of what you want to know is available in open sources. And because so much of this information is now available on the internet, you know, everything from, you know, spy satellite imagery, you know, to being able to look up people's addresses and phone numbers around the world, you know, it's it's gotten harder, actually, harder to justify all the secrecy that surrounds intelligence gathering. So let's take this story back to the beginning of this secrecy machine, which is Pearl Harbor. Why is Pearl Harbor a kind of launching pad, both for secrecy and for the idea that secrecy is something the government is sort of using to pull the wool over our eyes. In other words, the launching of the modern conspiracy theory. So a lot of people, when you grow up, you know a little bit of history, you hear about the people with the tinfoil helmets, right? And the the strange, you know, ideas that they have about the world. You know, when I was growing up long, long ago, <laughs> you know, you would, as soon as you start to learn about history, you hear of people who, you know, would tell you like, well, you know, you think you know what happened in Pearl Harbor, but there's a whole nother story. And those people have been around for a long time. And of course, there are many more people now, you know, people have conspiracy theories, whether it's about the Kennedy assassination or 9-11 or, or what have you. The thing that to consider, though, is uh, like, just think of it. The term conspiracy, what does it mean? It basically means, you know, people get together, do something criminal and try to cover it up. Now, if I tell you, like, you know, I believe there really are conspiracies in the world and I tell you it's not a theory, it's true. <laughs> I would be telling you a true fact. I mean, look at, for example, January 6th. We now know there were multiple conspiracies, right? They were, I think they lost count, but what I heard, it was something like there are eight or nine different conspiracies, right, to try to overturn that election. So you don't have to be a theorist. This is empirical reality. There are conspiracies in this world. Now, to take us back to Pearl Harbor, uh, what you find is not what we were told. <laughs> the American public was told, you know, back uh, just after December 7, 1941, the reason why this was supposed to be a day that would live in infamy was because this was a deliberate and unprovoked attack. Right. And Roosevelt told the American people and starting with Congress when he sought a declaration of war that American you know, officials were negotiating in good faith. Right. And they had every expectation that the Japanese were as well. 
and that they're still trying to ensure uh, peace in the Pacific. It's just not true. When you dig into the documents, what you find is that they knew an attack was coming. They knew for weeks beforehand. Not only that, but they were trying to provoke an attack because for months before that, you know, Roosevelt was trying to bring the United States into the war in Europe. And he tried everything. You know, he tried, you know, sending American destroyers in pursuit of German submarines. You know, they, they were opening fire and, and pursuing them, you know, over long distances, right? With the hope, the hope that Hitler, you know, would declare war and come after the United States. Now, was Roosevelt wrong to be doing that? I don't think so, right? I, I think it was probably the right decision to try, you know, to persuade the American people to bring the U.S. into the war. But the problem is most Americans at the time didn't want to get into that war. Like the vast majority of Americans were against what they considered a war of choice. So Roosevelt used it, you know, to be honest, like underhanded means. Uh, he knew, for example, that, you know, the Japanese, if their oil supplies were cut off, and the U.S. was the leading oil exporter in the world at the time, he knew that they would go to war, right? Because without oil, without gas, without aviation flu, the whole Japanese war machine was going to ground to a halt, and they were going to have to acknowledge that they had been defeated in China, right? And so Roosevelt initially, when that idea was first floated, he rejected the idea. He said this would bring war. But by the time you know uh, he'd come around to realize that there was no other way to bring the United States into war and be able to go after what he knew was the main enemy, Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, he began to realize that actually the oil embargo was precisely what the United States should do to Japan, because that was the only way that they could finally bring the Japanese to attack the United States. When we talk about this, there are people out there who would tell you, oh, they knew the attack was coming at Pearl Harbor. I'm not one of those people. Roosevelt needed an attack, but he didn't need the American battle fleet you know, to be sunk to the bottom of Pearl Harbor. And the one thing I would say about it is the reason why that happened, again, it goes to, you know, this problem of secrecy. You know, even in 1941, there was extraordinary secrecy surrounding signals intelligence. And it turns out one reason they knew the attack was coming was because they were intercepting and decrypting Japanese communications. But they did not share that information with the local commanders in Pearl Harbor. That's why American forces were caught unawares. And they realized that, and they realized soon after that that had to be a closely guarded secret. And the extent of the damage, the 2,000 approximately Americans who were killed, and the fact that so many of our capital ships had been sent to the bottom, that too was going to be classified. So when newspapers began to report on this, you know, Roosevelt called them un-American and actually wanted to send the FBI against them. So those are the kinds of secrets that, you know, are not national security information. These are examples of secrets that are used to cover up incompetence, right? And cover up, but in fact, you know, was, was something that Roosevelt was doing, in effect, pulling the wool over the eyes of the American people. Then the other kind of secret, which you allude to a little bit earlier, is the compartmentalization of information, um, the distribution of information on a need-to-know basis without people really being aware of who needs to know it and and that this remains a pattern over the next decades, right? I mean, what are some other moments in which this compartmentalization of information and the failure to share really has an impact on American foreign policy? Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the worst like intelligence disasters in American history, you know, came about precisely because officials were keeping secrets from one another. I'll give you an example we all know about, 
there was one you mentioned earlier when you talked about going to the archives after 9-11. When the 9-11 Commission had finished their work, they said one of the most important reasons why the United States was attacked unawares was because officials weren't sharing information with each other, right? The FBI had compartmented certain information. The CIA had compartmented other information. And apparently the FBI didn't think the CIA had a need to know, right, about the information that they were hoarding and hiding and vice versa. Right. So 9-11 is, I think, a very tangible example of how it is that, you know, it's not as if we have to strike a balance, you know, between, you know, the need for secrecy to protect national security on the one hand, democratic accountability on the other hand. In fact, what we find in many cases is that overclassification is a threat to national security because officials won't share information with one another. And worse than that, uh, at least in some cases, is how it is that in many cases we don't share information with our allies. Right? So when information is classified as top secret, it makes it difficult and oftentimes impossible you know, to share intelligence with our allies you know, that would, would help them and assist them and maybe give them more confidence you know, in American leadership. Well, and ironically, or perhaps not ironically, the narrative that comes out of the 9-11 attack is remarkably similar to Pearl Harbor. The clear blue sky, the enemy appeared from nowhere, we couldn't have possibly known, thousands are killed. Is this narrative of American innocence, something that those who keep our secrets are constantly going back to. That's right. You know, in my chapter on Pearl Harbor, I begin with a story about Winston Churchill. And I let Churchill tell the story, basically, because, you know, the man, he liked to drink. And one night late in the White House, uh, he probably had had too much to drink. And he started asking questions about what happened at Pearl Harbor. Because Churchill, after the war, this is in, I think, 1954, he'd finally come to realize what had happened, right? He knew then, you know, after the war was over, you know, how it is the U.S. was keeping signals intelligence from Britain. You know, how it is that Roosevelt was being deliberately provocative at a time in which Britain was terrified, right, of a, of a Japanese attack on their undefended Pacific colonies. So you're right. I mean, it was, it was 1941. This story was told in 1954. That secret was still secret, even in 1991. So uh, I know this because the first time I looked at a record of that meeting, you know, when, when Churchill had had a bit too much to drink and was asking questions about Pearl Harbor, questions that make him seem a little bit like a conspiracy theorist, that whole section was redacted. The only reason I found it was because we were using data science methods to find different versions of the same documents. And we found a later version of that same document where that redacted passage had been lifted. Interesting thing about this period, 1991, when they redacted that part of that document was when the United States, with Britain and other allies, was mobilizing and sending forces to the Gulf because they were getting ready to drive back the Iraqis from Kuwait. And so I think it's, it's not implausible that one reason why they didn't want to release a document showing how Pearl Harbor you know, doubted the official version of how the war began in 1941 was because, of course, many people were asking about how the Gulf War began. You know, and whether, in effect, you know, Iraq had been provoked into attacking and invading Kuwait. So this history, when you dig into it, what you find is like it not just if you use these kinds of methods, it's not just that it tells you things you maybe didn't know or gives you a different version of stories that you think are very familiar. But you can also learn things about, you know, our own history and parts of our past that our government still doesn't want to tell us about. Well, and also how stubborn government officials can be. I interviewed a uh, wonderful young historian named Catherine McGar in the last episode who has written about the foreign policy news establishment in Washington. And one of the things that she had in her book was that there's a guy in Havana, a reporter 
who writes to his editor 10 days ahead of the Bay of Pigs, everybody here is expecting an attack. Um, (laughs) And the editor gets it and sort of passes it over to one of his counterparts in government and says, you you should know everyone's expecting the attack that you're planning. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, And it was, of course, a disaster. So, So there's this question of... Actually, sometimes government officials do have all the information they need. They want to do what they're going to do, and then they need to cover up the consequences. But there are also other cases that, in a way, I find even more stunning, where government officials turn out to be totally clueless because the only things they know are the things that are classified. So I'll, I'll take an example. You know, I was, um, you know, I myself, like when I first started working as an historian in classified documents, I got very interested in this incident where the United States used financial leverage to force France to admit defeat in its war in Algeria. They didn't succeed in the end. This is in 1958. Instead, as some of you may know, you know the war carried on for years afterwards, but only because you know, the military revolted against what they saw as American interference in their internal affairs, and they brought Charles de Gaulle back to power. So I was really excited you know, when I discovered this, what I thought was secret American diplomacy, economic diplomacy, to overturn what turned out to be you know, the last government of the Fourth Republic in France. Well, that's when I started reading the newspapers for the time. I thought, before I turn this paper in, maybe I should have a look at like, what journalists were saying about it. It was all in the newspapers. <laughs> you know, This stuff that was classified secret, it turns out the journalists were reporting it at the same time. There are many examples like this. I was uh, just talking with someone the other day who had a top secret security clearance, you know, was involved in government research. And he told the story of how he was asked to evaluate one of these so-called special access programs right? And this is supposed to be like even more secret than top secret. It's a bit of a misconception, but even so, the people we're supposed to know would tell you like, oh, well, you know, this is top secret special access program. It turns out that this program, he said, was one that replicated technology that was already freely available in the public sector and could be bought for about four or $500. Now, when he told the people involved in this program, they were a little upset, but they were also very surprised. They had no clue. I'll tell you one last case, and I'm going to cite a real authority here. Even people in the IC, I think, would recognize the name Sherman Kent. So Sherman Kent was like far and away you know, the leading analyst of uh, intelligence. And in fact, they still, in the CIA, they have a school to train people on how to be better analysts. It's called the Sherman Kent School. Sherman Kent wrote about this. He said that you know there are too many people in government, including the CIA, where all they read is classified. And they don't even know, you know, how much is known outside of classified circles. And Sherman Kent had a great word for that. He called them innocents. He said there are all too many of these innocents working in government. And, you know, what you're saying gives us a little bit of insight as to how all of these classified documents end up in president's closets and uh, garages. You know, one of the big stories in the news in the last few months has been First, Trump having a lot of documents that he was determined to hang on to and was lying about. And then actually the Biden people start discovering him and then the Pence people start discovering them. And now apparently the National Archives has put out a call to all ex-presidents and vice presidents and said, you know, could you please um, go through your desk and your file cabinet and see if there's anything there? It seems to me that maybe people are so overwhelmed with classified documents that they don't really seem to know anymore what is and what isn't classified. 
I think that's right. Uh, I mean, in terms of like whether they would know or not, it's pretty clear when you're looking at a classified document that uh, it is classified because it will have all these markings, right? They, they make it clear and legible because they want people to be able to recognize them. But that's not the same as saying that they should know what information should be classified as secret. Uh, in the case of Donald Trump, it wasn't just a few, and they weren't just, you know, kind of lost in the shuffle, right, with all the other pages and files and all the rest of it. I mean, there were a fair number of these, right? And many of them are still in those envelopes, right, the envelopes that were marked as top secret and so on. You know, there are elaborate rules, right, about how these kinds of documents are meant to be handled. Among those rules are the fact that, you know, they're not supposed to be visible to people who don't have a need to know, who don't have a security clearance. They're supposed to be kept inside those envelopes. And even those top secret envelopes themselves are kept in other envelopes so that people don't know there's top secret material in them. So in this case, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Trump and his people, you know, knew that they had secret documents, right? And they knew too, because people kept telling them that they didn't belong to them, you know, that they belong to the American people, right? It's the National Archives that's supposed to take custody of them because they're our property, right? They belong to all of us. And if we don't have access to those materials, then, you know, even the court of history is closed. Even generations from now, historians won't be able to go back and reconstruct what happened during the Trump years. That said, I'm a little troubled about one aspect of what we've started to learn about uh, Biden and his secrets. It turns out that some of those documents were found in an envelope, but that envelope was marked personal. So, I have a problem with that. I'd like to know, you know, who it is who marked that envelope personal and what did they think they were doing when they were putting classified documents in them? It also seems to me that given what you're saying about overclassification, that actually the bureaucracy can't keep up with what is being classified and that part of the problem with any president, for whatever reason, being able to leave the White House with this stuff is that there isn't a bureaucracy that can keep up with the sheer numbers of what is being classified. Yeah, I mean, just to take an example, uh, the government, uh, part of the government called the Information Security Oversight Office, they used to try to estimate every year how many times officials classified information. At one point in 2012, uh, they estimated that it was 93 million times a year that's three times every second. Some official decided that they were uh, generating information that they wanted to be kept from the American people. Uh, by 2017, they gave up. They said they couldn't even guess, you know, how many times officials were creating secrets. So just think of it. I mean, the volume of secret information, just imagine the, the mammoth task, you know, of trying to identify all of these secrets and then trying to protect them. It was also 2017 was the last time this office was able or at least tried to create an estimate as to how much all this cost. The number they came up with was $18.3 billion, right? So that's more than the, the budget of the Department of the Treasury. Uh, imagine like we had a thing called the Department of Secrets, you know, a little bit like in Hogwarts, you know, with uh, Harry Potter, like Ministry of, of, what is it, the Ministry of Magic. So as we had a Department of Secrets, it would be bigger than the Treasury Department, right? And that's when they gave up. They couldn't even estimate any longer how big this thing was and how fast it was growing. So what are the moments between Pearl Harbor and 9-11 where we see the big spikes in classification and secrecy? Well, it's hard to track this. Uh, it wasn't until the Carter administration, you know, the late 70s, that this office was established and they tried to begin estimating 
you know, how many times people created secrets. And I, I keep using the word estimate because this was self-reported data, right? So they would ask, you know, different offices and so on, well, hey guys, how many secrets do you think you generated this year? Okay, so, uh, so that's a hard task, right? And it's hard to know like how much we should believe this. But what I find interesting is it was basically steady growth, you know, year to year. And what's more interesting is how, if you look at those moments in this history, and I'm going to begin with the Carter administration, but also during the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, all three of these presidents are even now considered, you know, to be presidents who are on the right side of history in the sense that they were trying to reduce overclassification. Each one of these presidents issued a new executive order that they said was finally going to fix this problem of excessive secrecy. And every single time, according to the reports of this office, the Information Security Oversight Office, after that executive order was issued, the number of times official classified information kept growing. In some cases, it kept growing rapidly, right? So if you look at this, you can chart it over time. The biggest spikes, you know, come like after 9-11. You know, it's in that period, you know, you know, the 10 to 12 years afterwards. And in these reports, they will say the reason why they think the uh, number is spiking is because of how so much of that information now is born digital, right? We're not talking about paper documents anymore. We're talking about like secure conference calls. We're talking about, you know, spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations and these kinds of things that can replicate you know, with the click of a button. But the, the real answer is nobody knows, right? The government can't even count how many secrets it creates each year. So why are secrets undermining our democracy? Well, just think of it. I mean, if you want to know what government does in our name, and you know that, you know, we have this Pentagon with a, a budget of over $800 billion. We have, you know, 18 different intelligence agencies now. Like even the Space Force has its own intelligence agency. When you look at their uh, practice, when these different departments and agencies review records and decide what can be released, what you see is that there's been dramatic decline in the numbers of records they've been allowing to reach the public. And what you also find is when they produce the, the statistics, and often they don't, but when they tell you, like, uh, once they review these records, even when they're 25 or 50 years old, what percentage of them gets released, sometimes you find that they release 10%, like the Central Intelligence Agency, they would release 10% of the records they reviewed, even records that were many decades old. So I'd like to know what they've been doing with all that money. I mean, I'd like to know more about, you know, the range of covert operations and black sites and all the rest of it. And I'd especially like to know, you know, once I've looked back at this history to look at some of the things that we do know about, right? When we want to look at things like Operation Northwoods or MK Ultra, I mean, or the experimentation on, on children and the elderly, like using radiation. I mean, there are a lot of like truly shocking things that government officials have done under the cloak of secrecy. So unless you think human nature has changed and people are just better now, then you have to wonder like how much more is going on that we don't know about. And of course, one of the reasons that Guantanamo is still open is that they had all of these guys that actually, you know, they tortured and they hurt and they didn't actually know that much and they weren't that important to the war. And by keeping them in Guantanamo, you don't, that doesn't get out. Um, I think like, you know, as bad as the crimes were of, of the way in which they tormented and mistreated people, you, you know, it's like that cynical French expression, like worse than a crime, an error. <laughs> it was a blunder. 
<laughs> because, you know, it was only later, you know, that we found out that, in fact, the FBI was getting useful intelligence from some of these people. And in many cases, like once they started waterboarding and torturing them, they started making up all kinds of crap. Now, one one last thing to say about that is, you know, I, I have a, a chapter, I call it Weird Science, like Secret Set of Stranger Than Fiction. One thing I was struck by is how, you know, a lot of the, the worst kinds of atrocities that have been committed by our government have been committed under the cloak of not just secrecy, but under the insignia of science, right? Where they would say like, well, these are experiments, these are studies, you know, we're trying to discover things here. And some of it's just ludicrous, like when they would spend tens of millions of dollars, like hiring psychics, who are supposed to detect like submarines and stuff using their brains from the other side of the world. Um, but some of it is like really kind of scary and sad, you know, and, and some things I think people know about, but they are still surprised when I tell them it's actually true. Like the government really did try to dose people with LSD to turn them into assassins. They actually wanted to have them assassinate public figures in the U.S., right? The, uh, the Pentagon had a false flag operation plan, Northwoods, right, where they wanted to carry out bombings on American soil. They wanted to sink refugee boats. So when we get to torture, one of the things I'm struck by is how the people who carried out these crimes – they too said that they were doing this as research, right? They, they described the waterboarding and the vigorous control methods they use, like how much water do we use? How much splashed up? They tried to do this with the idea that they were scientists, right? And they were making discoveries. And so like, to me, one of the worst aspects of this whole history is how a lot of people came to distrust science itself. Think of all those Hollywood movies where the bad guys are the government scientists who come in with their white coats, right? To, to dissect ET <laughs> or like in other cases, you know, when, when they deliberately like carry out uh, the infection and, and they start a pandemic right now, in a way, I think it helps us understand why so many people even now are distrustful of science, especially when they're getting it from their government. So the cost of official secrecy, it's not just the 18 intelligence agencies, the $800 billion Pentagon budget. It's also the immense and growing mistrust people have for their government. And it, you know, it makes you look back on a book like The Manchurian Candidate, which is actually a satire. But if you open up all those secrets, it's not so satirical after all. So, Matt, um, why should our listeners read this book now? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, if you're curious to know, you know, why it is that uh, a president, a sitting president is under investigation by the Justice Department. Uh, if you want to know, you know, why an ex-president might still be indicted, right, and end up in an orange jumpsuit, I think you have to go back to the beginning, right? You have to understand, like, how did all this begin and how did it grow out of control? But I hope, anyway, some people stick around for the parts of this book that are about how we might actually begin to bring all this under control. The reason why I wrote this book, it's called The Declassification Engine, is because doing this kind of research using data science methods to discover these secrets, you can also discover ways in which you can find the things that really do have to be protected. I mean, there are some really dangerous secrets, like whether it's sniper manuals or you know, ways to build uh, explosives with garden variety materials. There are secrets the government is not protecting things that really could get people killed. And so using this kind of technology, you could actually build systems that would both you know, protect the information that really has to be guarded and also accelerate the release of everything else so we can finally begin to hold our leaders to account.
And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.